I do think that COVID has accelerated the customer's expectation on efficiency of purchasing. Those who never shopped online have experienced it for the first time. Those who did shop online are shopping online more. People are saying pre-COVID to post-COVID purchase behavior, they expect to see at least a 10% increase in e-commerce. That does not mean that everybody's going to buy online and that's the only way to sell. But I do think that it sets up a customer expectation that is changed on efficiency. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another week of the pod. For uh, this week's episode, I actually had the chance to sit down with Barbara E. Kahn, who is a professor of marketing at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. So needless to say, she has a lot of experience, not just studying the industry, but also teaching the ins and outs of the industry to others hoping to join it. Um, So I wanted to get her take on not just what's happening now in the current climate, but how it really compares to some of the other critical moments that the industry has had to face and respond to. Take, for example, the Great Recession of 2008, and most recently, the uh, retail apocalypse. And she had a lot of great perspectives as far as how COVID-19 has served as a accelerator for certain trends and how brands in different categories will have to adapt and respond in light of the new developments and new consumer trends and behaviors and what trends may have to be fast-tracked as a result. We talk about everything from experience to store structure to even sustainability. So it's a very, very detailed conversation for a quick chat, a lot of different layers. So regardless of what category you're in, I'm positive that Barbara will have some great insights to share. Barbara, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out to join me today. Looking forward to uh, talking all things retail and honestly, the new realities of, of COVID with you. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. So before we dig into the nitty gritty of what's happening in our industry, let's start with the basics, a little bit about you. Why don't you share a little bit about your role and the work you do? Okay, well, I'm a marketing professor at the Wharton School, and I've been a marketing professor for years and years and years. Starting, I think it was in 2011, I also ran a retail center at the Wharton School called the Baker Retailing Center. And during those years that I was running that center from 2011 to 2017 was actually a very tumultuous year, a year, set of years in retailing. And it culminated in the year when I stepped down in 2017, that was dubbed the year of the retail apocalypse. And so because I was running that retail center, I had a front seat view to everything that was going on and transforming retail. And so when I stepped down in 2017, for the next six months or so, I wrote a book, which I called The Shopping Revolution, about some of the really massive changes that were going on in retail. And so in 2018, 2019, I was following everything that was going on in retail, and I was in a great position to also begin to observe how COVID has changed retail from the position of having been viewing retail pretty closely for the last 10 years or so. 
Yeah. So you definitely have a lot of contacts, not just folks like myself who who cover the space, you know, do their research, interview experts. You you really, your days were spent and have been spent really understanding the dynamics, the disruptions that are shaping the industry. And you see it from several sides now. So with the retail apocalypse and now COVID-19, which a lot of folks are referring to as a great accelerator. So although, you know, a lot of the trends may not be 100% new, it's accelerating the shift, say, to digital, shifting expectations or heightening expectations in a lot of ways. Would love your take on that, that use of the word accelerator. Is that kind of in line with your observations and your research? Are there any interesting comparisons maybe between, you know, what you've witnessed in your past research to what's happening today? I actually think accelerator is a great word to explain some of the processes that are happening specifically with regard to retail. But these trends have also happened in lots of other areas like education, travel, hospitality, So you're seeing a lot of parallel, even in healthcare. But yes, for sure, I think accelerator is the right word. If I go back to what I was looking at from 2017, 2018, 2019, you know, before the famous 2020 year that we're now in, we were seeing these trends, what people were calling at the time, omni-channel retailing. And they were describing that as the seamless integration between online and offline retail, where the data were being seen from one point of view, the point of view of the customer, and the retailer should basically be agnostic to whether people were buying online or offline. It was just one retail experience. That trend was happening for sure before COVID happened. And then when COVID did happen and a lot of physical retail was shut down, the retailers who did not have that integration between their online and offline worlds were really at a definite loss when the only selling that could be done for a long time was online. So that was one trend that was definitely accelerated. The other kind of trend that you'll see as the stores open up is one of the things I was noticing 2017, 2018, 2019, where the physical stores that people were choosing to go into would be stores in which they thought the customer experience would be beneficial. If it was easier to buy online, why would they go into the store? There had to be a reason to go into the store. So maybe it was to touch and feel the product. Maybe it was for the social interaction. Maybe it was for entertainment reasons. But there had to be a reason over and above the convenience of buying online. As the stores are opening up now in COVID, now there's even a higher hurdle to get people to come into the store because now there are a lot of safety and trust issues that are going on. And there are a lot of rules that people have to follow before they're allowed to go into the store. For some of these stores, you have to wait online before you're going to be allowed into the store because there's only a certain number of people that will be allowed in the store at one time. All of these put a higher hurdle on the in-store customer experience to be something that customers trust and find value in before they're going to venture into those stores. So those, just as an example, are two trends that I saw happening before COVID that COVID-19 accelerated. 
Yeah. And I think those are great examples, especially around the obstacles to creating that great customer experience. I mean, just based on some of the other conversations I've been having around what makes a great customer experience, right, at a fundamental level. And, you know, a few people have said it's all about identifying possible hurdles or bumps in the experience and trying to smooth them out, whether that's through, you know, the power of human touch or through technology or services. So the fact that this current situation is increasing the size of those hurdles, I think, is testament to the work that retailers need to do and also maybe even widens the gap between the haves and the have-nots, right? Like the retailers that have always been doing it well and have been able to pivot and adapt seamlessly versus those that have always been a few steps ahead and in turn are, are struggling even more now because of that acceleration. So I'd love I'd love your take around the longevity of retailers that are going to be able to come out of this situation less affected or or even successfully, right? Because of their ability to pivot. Do you think that the ones that will come out on top, so to speak, are, are going to be the ones that already have that strong omni-channel foundation in place? Or do you think that we're going to see a few stories come out of this of, you know, retailers that maybe had their struggles and, and worked really hard to right the ship, so to speak? So you mentioned in your question, there were several different points. So let me parse it out and answer some of those questions in pieces before I get to the final big point of your question, which is, will the haves make it and the have-nots not? But before you got there, you were talking about what does customer experience mean? You mentioned taking away the bumps or the hurdles in the customer experience. And the way I think of the customer experience is a little broader than that. So let me just look at that first idea first. Great, great. Within my book, The Shopping Revolution, I have this matrix I call the con matrix or successful, I forget exactly what it's called, it's the matrix for successful retailers or something like that. And basically the idea is when thinking about customer experiences, I think it's broader than just taking away the bumps. I think there's actually two dimensions to it. The one dimension is give me a reason to go into the store. So make it worth my while, like make it more fun or more social or more pleasurable. So that's a positive. Give me a positive benefit for going into the store. What you were referring to is what is the other side of it, which is take away the pain. And I call that frictionless. So either make it a positive experience or make it frictionless so you removed all the pain points. And I actually think that you're seeing retailers do one or the other, sometimes both, but they have to be the best at something to get people to come into the store. And so what Amazon has been famous about on their online experience, but even in their physical stores, is just removing all the friction, all the pain points. If you've ever been in an Amazon Go, you know, you log in through your app, you walk into the store, you just walk around, you take whatever you want, and then you just walk out. There's no pain points. There's no standing in line to pay. There's nothing that's going on. You want any information, you can look it up on your phone. It's as easy as possible. You can run into an Amazon Go store during lunch and within five minutes, get your food and be out of there. That removes all the hurdles and all the bumps in the experience. And it makes it a desirable store to go into. 
On the other hand, the customer experience of something like before COVID in Italy or Sephora, those were havens. Those were playgrounds that people liked to go into those stores and be there because it was fun. You could experiment. You could try. So both of those were reasons that people had for going into the store and increasing the customer experience. So to the first part of your question, I think the big takeaway, just to make it simple, if you want to get people to come into the store, make it easier than anything else or make it more fun or something that they trust more than anything else. So that's point one, number one. Then point number two would be, is there going to be a difference between the haves and the have-nots? And yes, we have seen, going back to your original question, that notion of an accelerator, during the really restricted part of retailing, when only essential retailing was allowed to be open, clearly the fact that Walmart and Amazon offered opportunities of essential retail or Target for that matter, and everybody else was closed, accelerated their advantage. So it's hard to imagine a world going forward where Amazon, Walmart, and Target, where they used to have incredible advantages, don't in fact have even more advantages in the future. And I'll add Costco to that group. So if you're going to talk about the real haves, I would isolate those four as the real haves, Amazon, Walmart, Target, and Costco. And yes, I think that they're going to benefit to a greater degree than other retailers would because of their ability to be open when everybody else had to be closed. But does that mean Two things. Does that mean the ones that weren't the haves, that the have-nots, don't have a chance? And two, this is not part of your question, but it is interesting to think about. It's not only the big haves that benefited. Your local grocery store also benefited because it was essential retail or the your local drugstore thing or a local hardware store. Some of those stores that were allowed to be open benefited from the restricted environment on everybody else. So another question you might ask is, will they be able to retain their advantages in the future? So if we look at all sorts of have-nots, the ones that had to be closed and now have to open in a new world, the ones that were open but were in a, the right place at the right time, can they control their advantages? And the answer is, we'll see, you know, but yes, there is a possibility if they focus on creating customer value, if they focus on taking away the pain in the shopping process, there is a way for small businesses to go forward and be successful in the future, but probably they're going to have to pivot and they're not going to be able to do just what they did in the past and still win. Yeah, I think those are some fantastic points, Barbara, especially I think across the board. I'm glad you brought up small businesses, though. I think across the board, we're going to have to see a level up of the customer experience because there's been this reset, so to speak, around how consumers shop in and of itself, but also, you know, a few shakeups in terms of who they decide to shop with. I mean, of course, due to closures, um, like you said, just the situation itself may have forced them to pivot their decision making process or the brands they turn to. So there, there's a bit of a, a bit of a new world of how do we re-win the customer if, if say they're an existing customer. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out. But I do want to dig into a few different verticals within the retail world. 
most notably, I think a lot of people have been thinking about talking about the state of the department store, just given all the shakeups that have been happening. And in a recent article appropriately called From Apocalypse to Supernova, How the Pandemic is Changing U.S. Retail, you said a lot of people are talking about the death of the department store. I predict the death of bad department stores. And this kind of goes into, again, the gap between the the folks that are, are really emphasizing experience versus those who have not. So, I mean, in your own words, kind of break down what that difference between the good department store versus the bad department store, what does that mean in your mind? What does that mean from a customer experience standpoint, especially in context of the now, right? I mean, we're, we're kind of in a new ground altogether. Yeah, well, a bad department store is one that doesn't give the customer a reason to go into the store. That's just the very fundamental You know, if I don't see any value in going into that department store, then I'm not going to go into that department store and that department store won't make it in the future, obviously. So what does that mean? Why won't I go in? Well, if I care about price and I can get products cheaper at Target or TJ Maxx, why would I go to the department store? If I care about having a good time or seeing luxury products and I can get better products somewhere else, why would I go into a department store that doesn't offer anything that's better. Department stores, many of them, were just really not responding to the changing environment. They would have frequent sales, which would make people not believe that they were ever getting a good deal unless they bought something on sale. They wouldn't refresh their inventory often enough. They were forecasting demand very poorly. As the situation got worse during the retail apocalypse and they were worried about their survival, They fired employees within the stores and made the customer experience even more frustrating. And so they gave a customer less and less reason to go into that department store at all. In particular, ones like Sears and JCPenney's were really floundering. You know, there just wasn't a good reason to go into the store. The product wasn't exciting. The prices weren't the best. The customer service was poor at best. What's the reason to go into those stores? And then that same thing happened to Macy's a lot. They were Macy's had over the years bought up all these really fun regional department stores that had long, long regional histories, and they turned them all into Macy's. And a lot of people at the time were very sad to see their old fat stores go out of business. And here there was a Wanamaker's that turned into a, a Macy's and some of these other Marshalls, I think, or whatever the ones in, in, I forget what they were called in Chicago. A lot of the long legacy of regional dominance was taken away and homogenized by Macy's. And then it just made the department store what I would call stuck in the middle. It neither offered a better experience or a better price or any real reason to come into the store. And that that's very damning for the future. The other thing that a lot of department stores did were they very slow to pick up on this omni-channel trend. So historically, the department stores typically had their in-store experience very separate from their online experience. And so they had very separate legacy systems, and it took them a long time to merge that data. And as a result of that, they were not in the right place at the right time when omni-channel retailing became the norm. The other thing that the department stores, opportunities that they missed 
was they didn't have very good loyalty programs. We know now that the very sophisticated retailers have very sophisticated data analytics and they develop algorithms to optimize the customer experience based on a lot of data that they've collected over the customer over a period of time. They know what customers want and they know what customers don't want and they can personalize the experience for the customer to be more fun or more efficient. But the loyalty programs at these historic legacy department stores were buy 19 and you'll get the 20th free or I'll give you a discount or this or that. They weren't really leveraging all that information that they had about the customer to give them a better personalized experience. So a lot of these legacy department stores just missed opportunities. And when you get into a very competitive world, like the retail apocalypse was forcing, and now COVID-19 is, is accelerating, to use your word again, you can't afford to not be doing the best to compete against these very, very smart retailers like Walmart or Target or Amazon. So a lot of these department stores, I'd be surprised if they're all going to make it. I don't know. Uh, Macy's is very big, and so they'll be around for a while, and they have very good locations, and so perhaps they'll stay. JCPenney's and Sears have been on their last legs for a very long time. I think Neiman filed for bankruptcy recently. Some of the other ones that are more regional, uh, I think are in big trouble. So we'll see how many of those can make it. Some of the more innovative ones I'm hopeful for, like I'm the big fan of Nordstrom and Nordstrom's has tried a lot of interesting experiments. Some of them have worked and some of them maybe not as well, but they keep trying new things and they keep trying to maximize the customer experience and delight the customer. And I'm very much in favor of that. Yeah, a lot of really great points. And I agree that Nordstrom has always risen to the top, like from a principal standpoint, that emphasis on the customer, always trying new things, testing new experience approaches, new services, really stepping up their omni-channel fulfillment offering. So we'll, we'll see how everything kind of shakes out. But I agree Nordstrom kind of rises to the top in terms of department store retailers that are attempting to pivot and adapt. But I, I think, you know, that that breakdown of what's happening in the middle of the the value range, so to speak, if we're looking at retail as a whole as, you know, a sliding scale, right? Department stores are very much in the middle, like you said. But let's go to the other end of the spectrum, most notably that luxury space, because I feel like this is a very interesting area to look into just based on consumer sentiment, consumer spending patterns. You know, we see that side of the data, but then there's also, you know, some signs of almost pent up demand. So I noticed that, you know, brands like Gucci, like they're trying to digitize their high touch service by doing live streaming. I think I saw an article recently, like with stores outside of or uh, lines outside of these luxury stores in China, once stores started to reopen, kind of indicating that there's this pent up demand or desire to go back into these stores. So would love, love your take on where you think the luxury category is going as we look closer at the reopening and recovery process. Again, because I feel like there are two very, very different sides to, to this space right now. 
Yeah, I agree. There are two sides. On one, and stuck in the middle is not the good side. So on one, right. <laughs> on one side, there's this emphasis on value, good price. And then you're seeing a lot of retailers that are doing very well on that. Costco does well. Walmart, those are everyday low price, very good deals. TJ Maxx, the treasure hunt kind of idea to get. It will be interesting. TJ Maxx is a whole other story we can talk about later because they're really doubling down on their stores and their treasure hunt, and they're not investing in the online. So that's an interesting world. But all of those retailers historically have been successful because they've offered low price and low price will always be attractive to some segment. But on the other side, what you're talking about, luxury and maybe more generally, luxury in particular, and more generally, some really good brands like Nike. I don't know if I would call Nike and Apple necessarily luxury, but they offer a very good branded experience. And luxury, I would call things like Louis Vuitton or Gucci or Hermes, it's different than just a strong brand, but they both offer something which is on the value side, not necessarily on the price side. They offer something that people just hunger for, which is what you're suggesting. And I completely agree. People have been talking for a long time about the death of brands or the death of luxury. And luxury has been around for 300 years. You know, there is something that luxury offers that people really want. If you don't have a lot of money now, if you're in a, in a tight economic situation, maybe you'll just by a little bit of luxury, like a Chanel lip lipstick or Burberry scarf, you know, or something like that. If you can't really afford to buy everything luxury, but people want a little bit of special joy in their life and people who can afford more want more. <laughs> and I think there really will always be a place for luxury, but Luxury is in a difficult situation. After the recession in 2009, one of the retail sectors that came back very strongly and one of the first ones that came back was luxury. But a lot of that came back because of a very strong China market. So the Chinese are very big purchasers of luxury around the world. And that market was strong even after the recession in the United States. And that helped sustain luxury back at that time in that economic recession. Now, with the pandemic, China has some issues also, so it may not be able to bail out luxury as well as it did in the past. But I agree there's still a hunger for luxury, and whether it comes back very quickly or a little bit more slowly, I completely agree that luxury is here to stay. Yeah, and it's definitely been interesting to see the perception of luxury among the different consumer groups. Like, I know... Gucci is really big with, I think it's consumers like 35 and younger. They make up a really large share of their purchasing group, which is a bit surprising. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we're seeing Chanel increase the price of, you know, their more notable designs, because I almost wonder if people are almost looking at these items as investments. So to your point around brand equity and, and value, people look at a Chanel bag, you know, a Chanel classic chain bag as, you know, something that they can pass down in their family. It's more of like an heirloom. So it'll definitely be interesting to see that combination of brand equity and like how are brands going to be innovating 
in light of these new consumer behaviors that we're all trying to figure out right now? Well, you see that dimensionality in luxury. There's some brands that are very much fashion brands like Gucci is, and there the idea is to get the latest and the greatest. And you want to buy Gucci or something like that that's luxury because you want to stand out from the crowd. You don't want to look like everybody else. You do want to have something that's new and exciting. And luxury can offer you that. The, the exclusivity and the scarcity of it is very much what's the value of luxury in that case. And those fashion brands are turning around, trying to predict trends, being the first one to have the cool new luxury kind of thing. That's one model. The Chanel model, as you're suggesting, is classic and traditional. And there you want something that will last for a long time, like an heirloom. And that text its value in that sense because it's always going to be in style that bag that you were talking about from Chanel and some of the other classic fashion, you know, the little black dress or whatever it is that's always in style. That's another advantage of luxury. You're going to get it because it has very high quality. It will last for a long time and you can make that investment. But those are two different reasons kind of to buy the luxury product. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And I guess to add another layer to the conversation, because I do want to get into this whole notion of of sustainability with you, I, I felt like some luxury brands were the earliest to move in terms of rethinking the planning cycle. And you kind of talked about that a little bit with department stores, how, you know, the approach to inventory planning and assortment planning has been a bit flawed. And, you know, we've always been taking this seasonal approach, you know, where, you know, companies are starting to promote winter jackets in the summertime. So like everything is kind of outside of the context of what the consumer needs or is looking for in that moment. And we're seeing luxury brands be the first to move and say, no, we're, we're not doing the traditional traditional runway shows. We're rethinking our planning cycles. We're going to go with the consumer. So uh, I guess my question for you is, do you think that's going to be a broader trend that we'll see transcend through luxury and permeate across retail as a whole? Or is there still a lot of foundational rethinking that needs to take place in retail for us to get there? Yeah, that's a very complicated question because, well, as you were alluding to, a lot of the luxury market and the high-end fashion market, their fashion shows and the runways were almost 18 months before it's going to appear in the store. And so you would be buying things, you know, they wouldn't get to the store for a long time. You'd see things on the runway that took a long time to get into the ready-to-wear market. And that's what Zara took time there to reduce the time from runway to store. And that was a big advantage that Zara's did to get those very in fashions into the stores much more quickly. But typically, there's a big, long cycle to get the fashion into the store. And it's typically you're buying winter clothes in spring and you know resort clothes in winter and all sorts of the timing has been off. So some of the younger retail brands have suggested just as you are saying, to be more customer focused and to put items in the store when customers want to wear it. And you can certainly imagine that would be great from the customer point of view, because I would rather be shopping for warm weather clothing when the weather is in fact warm than trying to anticipate what it would be like to feel like I was warm when it's freezing outside. However, this won't work unless everybody in the industry kind of agrees to do that. And there have been some holdouts. From what I understand, Chanel did not sign on to this. There was like a 
some kind of proposal that a lot of the retailers and the young retailers in particular signed to try to match more closely when things were sold with the season that they're sold in. And I don't believe that Chanel agreed to that. And Chanel, of course, is a very strong name in the luxury fashion market. So if they don't come aboard, it'll be interesting to see what will happen with that initiative. Some of the younger brands can do it, but we'll see what will happen on that. Then you bring up a whole other issue, which is the sustainability initiatives. And for sure, we're seeing a huge trend, particularly with younger consumers like the Gen Z and millennials who are really investing in sustainability efforts and they totally believe in it and they'll put their money where their mouth is. And I think that is more than a passing trend. That is going to be a change in the world and people will more and more and more build sustainability into their marketing and into their offering. It took a little bit of a step back in COVID-19 because some of that notion of reusability and trying to get rid of excess packaging and things were kind of abandoned and for health reasons. So we saw a little bit of a movement around the sustainability issues when they coincided with health concerns. But that aside, I think the big trend of making things more sustainable is something we're going to see continue into the future. Now, what does that mean? Like that was some of the pushback against fast fashion, because the idea behind fast fashion was get something that wasn't that well made, but that was very trendy. You'd wear it one or two times and then kind of essentially throw it away. That is not a sustainable effort. And so you're seeing some pushback against that idea and some movement towards the idea of buying classic items that last for a longer time. You don't need to buy new clothes every season. You can wear them a little bit longer. That's better for the environment. So there's a lot of these conflicting trends, you know, and we'll see how they play out. But I I definitely agree sustainability is something that people care about. That's great. And I think another angle to that is the fulfillment piece, right? I mean, Amazon kind of set the standard around prime, next day, two day, now same day uh, delivery. And now we're seeing retailers try to bolster their offerings in order to, you know, reach that high level. But on the other hand, you know, other end of the spectrum, I am seeing some, some rumblings among consumers basically saying, okay, well, do we really need that right now? So I think it's definitely an interesting conflict of consumer expectations and and preferences because there are always going to be the people that say, hey, I paid for Prime. I want that product as soon as possible, whereas others are almost thinking more critically around not just their purchase decisions in and of themselves, but, you know, do I want to do I want them to pack this in a separate box? And do I want to rush this same day even though I don't necessarily need it? So I feel like all of these micro trends, so to speak, come together under the sustainability umbrella and and really, really are changing things in a way. I mean, we'll we'll see what kind of that, that long tail effect will be and how sustainability can and will come to the forefront over the coming months or a year. But I do think, you know, there's a lot of potential there. So hopefully um, it'll rise to the top in in the retail boardroom, right? I guess that's a whole different (laughs) layer to the conversation. Yeah, I mean, the sustainability angle is one aspect of the delivery. You're talking about whether you deliver, you know, 
more efficiently. Sustainability is one piece of that, but another really big piece of that is the cost structure of it. The problem with that last mile is it's very expensive. And if we move more to this delivery model, that is going to put a lot of retailers out of business because they just can't be profitable like that. So what they are trying to do is to move people to be a little bit more reasonable about their delivery options and to bear some of the costs. One of the very successful uh, initiatives, and Walmart's done a really good job on this, and I think a lot of other retailers are trying to do this too, is buy online, pick up in the store kind of idea. And so that you do the last mile delivery yourself. And that will reduce some of the costs in that bumpy delivery process that you're talking about. So I think that the delivery process in two day, one day, whatever it is, is part of sustainability initiative, but very much a cost initiative too. And you can just take all the profitability out of retail if you don't solve that problem. Like for example, from what I understand, say with restaurants, when they get their products delivered to the home, they basically make no money because the delivery service takes a cut out of it. The margins aren't that high in restaurant to start with. They're just not going to be in business if they have to keep doing that kind of stuff. So we are going to have to rethink that whole delivery model in a way that makes it more efficient. Yep, absolutely. And I guess, you know, curbside kind of helps, like you said, kind of eliminate the pain of that last mile and then allows the customer to fulfill it in a certain way. So the retailer doesn't have to worry about, you know, managing those costs and and making sure the product is getting to them quickly and efficiently and effectively for the business in and of itself. This has been fascinating, Barbara, and I know we, we've peeled back a lot of layers to you know, this overall big picture of what's happening in the retail landscape now. So thank you so much for uh, you know walking through all of this with me today. But I think to close out our conversation, you know, if we're looking at this new reality, right, everyone's saying the new reality, the new normal, the next normal, whatever, whatever it is, I would love you to kind of close out with where you think the customer is going? Like if you were to kind of paint a picture as far as, you know, how their behaviors are going to change in the long term and what retailers really need to do to kind of set their plan in place. Do you have any closing thoughts or recommendations for the folks listening, you know, the retail executives that are trying to navigate all of this change and really set their business up for success? Well, to go back to something we said at the beginning, you know, you use the term accelerator. I do think that COVID has accelerated the customer's expectation on efficiency of purchasing. Those who never shopped online have experienced it for the first time. Those who did shop online are shopping online more. People are saying pre-COVID to post-COVID purchase behavior, they expect to see at least a 10% increase in e-commerce. That does not mean that everybody's going to buy online and that's the only way to sell. But I do think that it sets up a customer expectation that is changed on efficiency. So I think people will have little tolerance now for inefficient purchase processes where you have to sign a bunch of different things and wait on a long line to buy something. We're going to go much faster to these very fast, efficient payment processes. They were already in place in China. They were way ahead of us on that dimension. And I think you're going to see an accelerated consumer demand for those kinds of things. So I think there's like two trends. On one hand, customers just value efficiency. They value painless shopping. They don't want to worry about stuff that they buy all the time. And the expectations for that will be much higher. And you just can't clunk along as a retailer and be inefficient 
efficient and keep your customers. That won't work. But on the other hand, we also all have cabin fever and we're tired of being inside and we want the fun of shopping. And many of us love to shop just for the fun of shopping. And so the idea that we'll get to go back into stores and play around and touch and feel products someday, we'll get to do that again and experience social interaction and fun in the stores. I think that will be very much something people will long for, but they won't put up with boring not safe environments. So you're going to have to have fun, clean, efficient, safe retail environments that attract consumers into your stores. So I just think that COVID has accelerated both ends of it, efficiency and fun. And if you can do one or the other, you will attract the consumers of the future. Love it, Barbara. Thanks again so much for taking the time out. Again, just given your depth of research and understanding between your book and your day-to-day work, um, this is really an, an insightful conversation, I think, especially in context of just the bigger picture of all the change our industry has experienced and, and how COVID-19 has really accelerated some of these new realities for our listeners. So thank you again so much for breaking it all down for us and for sharing some great tips and best practice along the way. Really appreciate appreciate it. Sure. My pleasure. It was fun talking with you. Likewise. And uh, thanks everyone out there for listening. As always, if you have any feedback for us on this or any other episode of Retail Remix, feel free to reach out to us on social media. And of course, subscribe. You'll be able to get updates whenever new episodes are available. Thanks again, everyone for joining us and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.